Hey, everybody. I don't know how to start it off. What are your thoughts about the intro? All right. Well, I wrote down a list of points. Boundaries for our podcast. We curse a lot. Fucking obviously. We tell stories and jokes. We are allowing ourselves a space to talk about important and challenging subjects. <laughs> if any of these things are not okay with you, please don't listen to this podcast. But I, I think we should keep talking about this for for a minute and make that the intro. Just kind of take some of each of our statements and and make that the intro. And also I'll use the fart noises. Welcome to How I Met My Brother. Let's start the new episode. Okay. Okay, this is a new episode now. This is episode three of How I Met My Brother. It's a uh, podcast about two adults finding out that they're siblings and learning about each other. My name is Leo Cardoza. And I'm Heidi J. And here it it is. Um, So we, let's start with the tattoo thing because you've been wanting to talk about that. Um, So you, 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 you want to discuss, compare tattoo stories. So you go first. Well, first of all, how many tattoos do you have? Um, three, like eight, I think. Eight. Okay. Give me a second. I have one, two, three, four, five, six. All right. I got six. Um, okay. So you, you go first. I'm first. So we want to do chronology. If you want. All right. Chronology. Tattoo stories siblings they just met first tattoo is this one mm-hmm. so this it's is an uh, armband uh in is it what what's the language japanese kanji okay it's suko tanaguchi she did the calligraphy for this uh, and it says woman courage humility love passion wisdom man that was my first. Okay, your turn. Okay, um, this isn't my first one because my first one ended up getting incorporated into a, a, the larger piece that's on my arm. But I'm gonna see if I can stretch my leg up here so you can see. Yes. Oh. So this uh, tattoo is on the back of my right leg. I don't know if you can. Can you? Right. Can you make out what it is? All right. So audience. It's it's upside down because his calf is upside down and the upside down word says divot seventy eight and it looks uh, 70, like seventy nine but yeah seventy nine and it, it looks like a painting of a nature scape of some kind. What is that? So it's actually it, it's it's okay that it's upside down because it's a reflection. So the horizontal line here is the the water and it is a zebra looking out of the water. That is a zebra. Yeah. And then there's the, so that's, yeah. So dad painted this. um, He actually painted it in 81 and uh, it was originally Alex's idea to get the tattoo. And then I stole the idea and got the tattoo without um, uh, talking to him first. And then I think he was mad about it and decided not to get it. Because originally we were both, originally we were both going to get it. Why didn't you both get it? I don't know. He just decided not to. He doesn't have a whole lot of tattoos. He's only got a couple. Hmm. 
Does he have any tattoos of Divot's paintings? Mm-mm. All right. Tattoo number two. Okay. There, 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 there. Let's see. If I can oh, do better, this. it better be a tramp stamp. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, it Hold is on. It is a tramp stamp, ladies and gentlemen. What the hell's a tramp stamp? It's a tattoo in the area of your body where this tattoo is, except this looks like math. Math. There's the math, and then there's some. Is that a, like a helix or something? Just and then the helix is, is later on. There's a negative. So just the math. What does it like say? The negative imprint of a star of a of an eight pointed star right at the top of your of your butt crack. Um, <laughs> and then the, the math. I don't know what this equation is. It looks like infinity <coughs> plus or minus, and then yes, absolute yes. value of. Yes! Uh, theta and parentheses x squared dx equals one. Yes. What is I, that audience? I have somebody no, out there is a physicist. I have no idea. Schrodinger's probability equation. Oh, uh, okay. I've never seen it before. I'm familiar with the Schrodinger's with the the concept of Schrodinger, but uh, I've never seen that. So, and I got that when I was studying physics. Okay. And that was modern physics. My teacher was Jim Jacobs. And it essentially means if you integrate from negative infinite negative infinite space to positive infinite space, all the possibilities the electron will be somewhere. Okay. So just I just thought was mind blowing, I think that Quantum physics just blew my mind. And I was like, wow. Things can be happening in different parts of space-time at the same time and communicating with each other. Particles can communicate with each other instantaneously across space. There's all this crazy shit that happens in the quantum realm that we barely understand, and it's just... Oh, cool. Dude, you have really got to read the sci-fi books that I was telling you about, the Expanse series. The Expanse series, that's it. That's what um, I need to do. You, All right, because yeah. I looked at those in the library, and they didn't have the first one. So okay. I should just order that. You can order it, or honestly, um, the Amazon series that they made of the show is okay. It's not as good as the books, but the first season of the series probably does the best job of directly translating what's in the books. There's relatively little deviation within the first season. Um, and it gives you Amazon prime. Yeah, it's on Amazon prime. Um, but you can also get them, uh, you can, you can get all of them on, audible or if you're low, like the Boise library has um audiobooks you can check out audiobooks through this app the guy who reads the audiobooks of the expanse series is fucking awesome um so i really i really like those uh those those books on on audiobook um but i've been through them much times and one but one of the strongest parts about the the whole series is they do a really good job with the science and the physics because um, like so much science fiction kind of leans more in the land of fantasy and when it comes to the actual science it'll kind of yada yada or it'll make up a you know this is the this is the technology that exists or you know you've got like the 
um, like the, the Frank Herbert universe where it's like, there is a substance that allows people to be psychic and then all, and then being psychic allows them to travel through space. And you're like, okay, sure. Whatever. <laughs> Fucking fine. Or you've got like the Star Trek universe where it's like, yeah, our engines go the exact speed that we need them to go to get where the ship needs to be for the plot of this episode. And, uh, you know, there's no, no consistency whatsoever, but like one of the things that they, um, that that eventually happens in the uh, in the story is there is this alien technology and it's kind of at the the crux of like all of the 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 action and conflict within the um, the series and the technology has among other things the ability to it basically quant to to communicate on a quantum level um so you'll have like one uh, one version oh, of shit. the technology yes. this this um the, it's called the proto molecule so you'll have like um a person who is infected with the proto molecule who is at who is somewhere in a solar system or in a, even in a different solar system um and then a, and then uh something that's connected to the proto molecule like over here and then they do something to this thing that's connected to the proto molecule over here and everything that's connected to the proto proto molecule all reacts like at the same time oh, um so and they cool. like they talk about this idea of like you know instantaneous quantum communication as opposed to um, uh, like wave communication or like it, you know, it, it all happens at the same time. They, I, they, they use a descriptor that I, uh, that I really like, uh, for, uh, for, for quantum communicate communication. Like if you think of any, any waveform communication, any like, uh, video, audio, radio, laser, you know, light communication, all the, the information travels in, in waves. So if you think about it as a, like a body of water, you drop a rock in the middle of it and the waves ripple out. Right. But quantum communication is, is, is as if you had a piece of glass that is the exact size, uh, size and shape of the surface of the entire lake. And you dropped that on the whole lake, uh, on, on the lake and it touches everywhere all at the same time. So it all happens. Uh, all at once is a really it's a really cool metaphor where did you hear that in those books yeah yeah that's one of, that's one of the metaphors that they use in the book i have no idea if they came up with that particular uh metaphor or if they got that from somewhere else but that's one like one of the scientists uh characters in the in the books is describing uh non-local communication that way i really wish sometimes that i could have delved deeper into physics i ended up you know, leaving corporate America and leaving the education system and going and finding my soul. Uh, but quantum physics, the nature of reality, that is so interesting and intriguing to me. And, and I know we talked about evolution of consciousness in the last podcast a little bit. And I just think that that is a part of that quest for our own evolution as well is is quantum and understanding all because I I have experienced that um, that my body has something quantum going on inside of it something physics when I healed trauma Something is locked away in our bodies, thousands of years old, locked away somewhere. We don't understand how. And then you start unlocking that. It's trapped in your body. And then the memories come back through some sort of wormhole. 
like it's physics. It's, it's not mystical. It's physics in the body, but we don't totally get it yet. And so it's just similar to, it's a callback to what we were talking about before. I mean, you're like, you're, you're totally right. And, um, I think there's, there's no other way to even, uh, to understand it. Like there's no other logic. If you, if you accept, uh, the basic principles of, of quantum physics. And even if you it like shit is way more fucking complicated than we have any concept of, um, you know, it's the, uh, uh, fucking so- uh, the the Socrates quote the that uh, you know wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. Uh, the more I talk about this in uh, in terms of uh, of wine because people often ask me like how I how I learn so much of stuff about wine how they can learn about wine and uh, and I'm always like the the thing about wine is that the more you learn about it the more you realize you have left to learn. Um, because, but there there is a finite amount of information about wine, and there are some people who are, you know, pretty pretty high up there. But for any for the, for for the average person uh, who does not dedicate themselves to understanding wine for the sole purpose of just having all of that information, um, you're not gonna get to you're you're not gonna get anywhere near the the hundred percent mark. Uh, you know, I think most people with a lot of experience and a, and, and a lot of uh, education in wine are probably sitting around a 30 to 40 percent, um, you know, knowledge and understanding level, um, you know, in terms of knowing all the grapes that there are, all the wine growing regions that there are, all the history that there is, um, the the all of the the soil subtypes like i fucking love dude i fucking i love talking about um geology and its effect on on winemaking um like i'm fascinated by the differences in uh in different wine growing regions uh have i i told you about the missoula floods right no fucking okay so End of the last ice age, where you're sitting right now is. When was the end of the last ice age? Uh, It's it's over the course of I think about two thousand years as the the planet is warming. Uh, So between fourteen and twelve thousand years ago. Uh, So where you're sitting was at the bottom of a lake, Um, and the uh, the the westernmost uh, edge of that lake, the border would freeze, and that is how the lake would fill up, and as we started having warmer and warmer years. Uh, on, in some years, it would get warm enough for the ice dam at the western end of that lake to break. And the water would travel from where you are across northern Idaho down into Washington, um, south to the Columbia River, and then carve out the Columbia River Gorge and uh, and and dump out at like Portland, Astoria, um, through, through there. So this... A series of events formed the all of the wine growing regions throughout the Pacific Northwest uh, were all f- influenced by the Missoula floods. So, what? Um, so they carved out valleys. Um, like one of the most uh, kind of like hot, cool, uh, like um, 
you know, sought after wine growing regions in um, Washington, and it actually crosses the border into Oregon. It's in the Walla, it's in Walla Walla, but uh, it's actually it's a subregion of Walla Walla Valley called the Rocks District, um, and it has these big big ass rocks these big river rocks and they were deposited there because it's at a low point in that flood path so that uh, all these and so the amount this the speed and volume of the of the water that we're talking about um it would have traveled from where you are to the city of portland in about three days um and it would have crazy i can't even fathom it would have been a volume of water that would leave most of the buildings in current downtown Portland, Oregon, underwater. Um, so the so the 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 floods deposited these these rocks uh, in the rocks district in Walla Walla. They also uh, stripped topsoil off of a bunch of the like scabland area through the Columbia Valley, um, and and they also ex- in addition to going out uh, through. Uh, Astoria, like past past Portland, it also went down through the Willamette Valley and carved out the Willamette Valley and uh, carved out the Van Duzer Corridor. The Van Duzer Corridor is the thing that makes uh, the Willamette Valley uniquely well suited to growing Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir is an extremely fickle and picky grape and it needs cooler uh, cooler growing conditions. And so the Van Duzer Corridor is where you look at at, at, at Pinot Noir growing regions specifically and every uh, like high quality, successful um, Pinot Noir growing region in the world has some aspect, something about it that makes it that that cools it off and makes it a, a good place for uh, a good place for growing Pinot Noir. So in Oregon, you've got the Van Duzer Corridor that allows cooling ocean air into the Willamette Valley to to um, to cool the vineyards there. In um, in France, in Burgundy, the the ancestral home of Pinot Noir. Um, it's relatively far north, and then you've got uh, cool mountain air that comes down off of the Alps, and you've also got the um, the like the the hillside aspect of uh, of Burgundy, where uh, where cooling air can kind of come down the the hill, um, and then in like uh, every every wine every Pinot Noir growing region in California is somewhere near like uh, a bay or a cooling influence uh, from the ocean. Um, New Zealand, all the all the best uh, Pinot Noir growing places in New Zealand are places that get a lot of uh, a lot of cool air, uh, and you just you really don't find. Um, quality Pinot Noir produced in places that, uh, that, that don't have some sort of, uh, a natural cooling influence. How did I get on that? How did I get off on that topic? That was a very Uh, long rant. That was based, uh, I'll bring it back around, although we could jump to addiction from this, but tattoos. Oh yeah. We were talking about tattoos a while ago, huh? Okay. So it's my turn. So So, it's your turn. Um, I'm going to go with um I, I don't know how i i, I can't sh- i can't really show you my feet from this angle so oh, let's go with the on. one on my leg okay. <laughs> oh yes what okay the? so oh my god this is uh so there's a lot of this there's there's a lot of this kind of art on the internet where people have taken um other characters is this Calvin and, and Hobbes? Yeah, is this so th- Calvin and Hobbes? They were my favorite. Yeah, so they were a, my favorite. Leo. There's a ton of there's a ton of art you can find of different uh, <laughs> duos from like different uh, 
different franchises at represented as Calvin and Hobbes. Like there's a really fun one that somebody's drawn of um, Calvin and Hobbes dressed up as uh, Chewbacca and Han Solo oh. in like a little a little toy a Millennium Falcon. It's really cute. But so this one is from the show Firefly. Firefly. So yeah, um, which if you haven't seen it, it's a very fun show. It's a very beloved cult hit that got really screwed over by the uh, um, the TV. Uh, that by uh, whatever channel they were on, I think it was Fox. Um, like their um, their airing schedule got screwed up, and they got canceled after our first season. But developed this this uh, cult following, and they eventually made a movie out of it. Uh, so this is two of the characters from uh, Firefly. Uh, the Calvin is dressed as uh, Captain Malcolm Reynolds, and Hobbs is dre- dressed as uh, Jane. And uh, Jane is holding his favorite gun. Um, <laughs> And wearing this uh, this knitted cap that his I think his mom made him or something that he wears through like half of the show, um, and then above uh, Calvin it says uh, it says aim to misbehave, which is Ooh, uh, you know, I love line it! from the show. All right, tell me, do you have a do you uh, what put that tattoo on your on your thigh? Um, Are you a misbehavior haver? <laughs> it was mostly that I just. I really, I, I, I really love the show from the first time that I saw it. I actually missed, um, I completely missed the original airing of the show. Never saw it. Like I saw previews and I was like, that looks good. And then I can, I, I forget what was going if I was in college, but I completely missed like the original airing of the show. And then the movie came out. I saw the movie. I was like, this is fucking dope. Uh, and then, uh, bought the, um, bought the TV series on, uh, on DVD and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a, a great show. It's, it's really fun. Um, it was a very early, it was, so uh, I was produced by Joss Whedon, um, who also produced Buffer the Vampire Slayer, which also had like a big cult following. And it was before kind of What's the, the name of the show again, the Firefly Firefly. Yeah. So stuff has come out about Joss Whedon, uh, not being as great of a guy being kind of a wolf, wolf in sheep's clothing, um, as a, uh, as a, as a feminist, um, which is very disappointing because he did like he yeah. w- like his shows were known for having really great, well-written, um, strong female characters. Um, and as it turns out, he was kind of doing that on with with one hand and with the other hand kind of um, using his credentials as a uh, a famous and outspoken feminist to sleaze his way into women's pants. So that wasn't as cool to find out. Yeah, it turns out there's kinds of there's kind of a lot of those bros. I've got another tattoo Still. from somebody who's who who has since disappointed me. Ooh. Uh, Cuz I have a I So have a, wait, okay, just to clarify, this tattoo was was more about the firefly and less about Calvin and Hobbes. Did you like yes. Calvin and Hobbes? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, when, I mean, so it was when about I was both, in high like... school, uh, when I was in high school, high school story, I hung out with a bunch of skaters and we were all skaters and we would play Calvin and Hobbes battleship in my friend Jess's pool. So we would have like the raft that we'd get on and we'd have teams and then, and it Calvin and Hobbes Battleship is the best thing to to play because what? you change the rules the entire time. So there's, oh, so okay. it's just this free for all, you know. And then you're like, oh yeah, well now I'm gonna bomb you with the giant striped zebra grenade, and it's gonna land on your head and capsize your fucking ship. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, well we just entered into the 56th wormhole and we got out of there and now we're coming up behind you. And anyway, Calvin okay, and Hobbes so Battleship, it's, right, I recommend so it's, it. It's a swimming pool version of <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes baseball. Correct. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Good job. Good job. Good job, yeah, yeah. Leo. Good job. Good yeah, job. Yeah. No. No. Calvin and Hobbes was very, very, very much a uh, um, a, a part of part of our childhood growing up. So that's definitely why I got like the um, the Calvin and Hobbes one. But the and it also like the message of, of uh, aim to misbehave because it kind of like this the story where it comes up in the movie is basically there. So the the main the, the main characters in the ship that they're on, um, they're kind of a a, a ragtag group of uh, of like smugglers slash it the show is most accurately described as a space western so it takes place in like humanity has uh colonized a different solar system and it's a solar system with a bunch of different planets and moons that are all habitable so you have some planets that are kind of the core of the government and are uh very wealthy and very high tech and then you've got all these other places where basically kind of uh uh old west libertarian ideals kind of flourish where people are just like out and doing stuff and sometimes it's great because people build great communities and sometimes people go out there so they can abuse power and uh and get away with it and uh they're the the crew of of the firefly are always just kind of doing trying to do the right thing and help out the little guy and um the short version of the plot of the movie is that basically they find out that uh, the government has done uh, a horrible thing and um, there and there are like all these forces within the government trying to stop them from um, from making public the information that they've learned. Um, and that's when it comes up when, he, you know, he's giving a speech to the crew and he's like, hey, you know, this might not go well. Um, you know, some of us could die. But and, you know, and you guys don't you guys don't have to go. But, you know, I'm going and I, I am uh, I am to be bad. I am to misbehave. Um, ah. So that's the that that's like the context of the of the quote of the show. Cool. Um, I'm wondering if we should push pause on the tattoos and get to the rest of those in the next episode. Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, we're, yeah, we're like 25 or something minutes into, into this one <laughs> and we haven't talked about, uh, addiction yet. Um, so, um, so one thing I want to, I do want to do a quick callback cause it, it's going to have to do with the song that I'll sing at the end and it will have to do with power. Um, but something you said about people who send other people dick pics. And I, this is an episode two, everyone. Uh, a peop, some people who send dick pics, they do it because they want to get a negative rise out of somebody. I've never heard of that one before. But that has to do with power. And people, when they are when their power is taken away from them at a young age um, through sexual abuse or through whatever, they tend to w try to do whatever it takes to get their power back. Um, and sometimes that is by taking other people's power away from them. Mm -hmm. So I am curious, can you talk about this book that you read, um, Hungry Ghosts, in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, and what, what did that book teach you? I've not read it. 
So, uh, yeah, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is by a uh, Canadian doctor named uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, oh, who, Gabor Mate wrote it. You, yeah, you may have heard of, uh, like, if he's he's got another really good one about ADD. Because um, he, like a lot of... Uh, a lot of other um, behavioral and substance addicts also have uh, ADD and ADHD symptoms or diagnoses. Um, and so can you say that again? I, I, a lot of people with uh, behavioral and or substance addictions uh, or tendencies towards uh, addictive behaviors uh, also have symptoms of or diagnoses of ADD or ADHD. Okay, another question. Have you read anywhere that ADD and ADHD can also be symptoms of trauma? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised um, to find that out. Um, At least to find out that there is some connection there. But I do not off the the uh, yeah off the top of my head. I don't um, don't have any specific stuff to back that up and it certainly seems like it and it's certainly um a person's ability to manage it uh could be affected by trauma because a person's ability to manage any <laughs> any yeah to manage anything um either what to manage anything whether it is a neurodivergent state or just to yeah to manage life in general uh obviously will be impacted by trauma um so the so he taught the the book is about his time working in with an addict community in canada um so it is of course furiating as an american who believes that we should and could and uh and need to have a better healthcare system um looking at the way that uh, their system works uh, versus the way that our system works. Uh, so basically, they have um, a uh, an old converted hotel that uh, he works at, and he works with uh, a, a community who are, you know, some of them are still using street drugs, some of them are on uh, on methadone or other um, other preventative or um, like treatments for trying either trying to get them uh, off drugs or um, one of one of the big things that he talks about is that you like you can't force somebody into sobriety if you're just trying to get them into sobriety to get them into sobriety you it just it, it's never going to work and that's why things like the the you know Britain has a, a system of managed um, heroin availability for people who are addicted to heroin like you can go to a doctor and get uh, and that's what like he talks a lot about they they developed a supervised injection site and the people who fight against these things are like you're just encouraging people to do drugs you're making it seem like it's okay for these people to be on drugs it's like no there it goes he and he he talks about well, another book that i really love is uh the power of now by by Eckhart Tolle. Um, and, and Mate references Tola, um, a a few times, but like the kind of core principle of the power of now is, uh, and I I wish I could think of the exact quote, but he, uh, Tola talks about basically like, um, when you don't accept the way that things are currently, like that's the definition of insanity because it is the thing that's happening is happening. And so if you sit there 
wishing that the thing that wasn't happening and it, and it's not to say that that the that in the future that thing can't be changed um and it's like right. if you if if you're on fire you can't sit there and deny the fact that you're on fire that doesn't mean that you don't try to put yourself out but currently you are on fire and if you're yeah. fighting with the idea of being on fire you're going to you're not going to do a very good job getting yourself on on fire um and so that's like that that that's kind of that's similar to what mate talks about with um with addicts it's like as long as somebody is in addiction and i also he doesn't hammer on this quite as much but i think that um that the language that we choose is is important obviously and um we you know we tend to talk about people about addicts as always being addicts and it's one of the things that i don't like as much you know you and i talked about like the definition of of alcoholism and you know 12-step programs have done a tremendous amount of help for a lot of people in helping them um get out of their addictive cycles uh but i think that to me there is something slightly problematic in that um insistence upon giving ourselves a permanent label of you know uh, is and all I am and always will be an addict or whatever. Like, um, it's just not a, a t- to me, it's not the most helpful or functional way to label it or to, to think about it, you know? Yeah, um, I, I hear you. Um, and what did Gabor say about, um, the causations of addiction? And slash, let's also tell the audience what each of our interpretation of the symbol of the hungry ghost is. Okay, so um, he talk when, when he spends a ton of time talking about um, generational trauma and and, and epigenetics and uh, all that because like it's it's very very clear and it's one of the things that's uh, again problematic with treating ep- treating um, uh, addiction as strictly a disease a strictly uh, like a, a, a diagnosis right. because there has to be I mean you can take people who are identical twins and you know raise them separately uh, and if one of them goes through a significantly different life or has different trauma or whatever, you know, they're probably going to have a lot of similarities, but they're also going to have a lot of differences in those. And I mean, that's what epigenetics is, is how your, how, how your specific personal environment, um, and, and your, and your life, uh, affects what's in your genetic coding and how that, that's what epigenetics is. Basically. Yeah. That's kind of how I understand it. At least it's like the, yeah, it's, it's how, um, it's how environmental factors can switch on and off different things that are in the genetic code. Uh, it's, it's how, you know, two people who are, who, who are, have the same gene, who are, who are siblings, um, have the same genes can, can grow up. And, you know, one of them has a, has a much harder time with, with addiction or whatever other problem, you know, because they're the, the, the trauma that they received throughout the courses of their lives are, uh, expressed differently. And, 
um, and affect different parts of, uh, of their genetic code. And then you've got like generational trauma and how it, uh, how, how it continues over time is another thing. One of the things that he spends a lot of time on in the book, um, is people who are like generational within this, this system, this, this, um, the, this organization that they're running. Um, cause there are people who were like, um, you've got two or three generations, you know, you've got, you've got child, parent, grandparent, um, that are being seen at this treatment facility, sometimes staying at this, this, uh, at this what? addict hotel. Um, you know, people who are like, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's that has to like, obviously that's nature and nurture, right? Like, yeah, you've got people who, um, uh, one like one woman that he talks about who was raised in foster care was never exposed to uh to drugs or anything like that um had a a, a, a loving um foster or a adoptive environment um but when she be, when she turned 18 she wanted to find out about her birth mother so she went and found her her birth mother is living in this attic community she shows up she finds her um her mom immediately gets her hooked on drugs and now she's been living in this, uh, like in this attic community for, uh, for years at that point. How quickly that's intense. Yeah. Um, I, when I was younger in my twenties, I had a pretty, you know, middle-class upbringing. I was just floored at how much of an addict I was. And I had no idea at the time anything about trauma, but certainly not ancestral trauma. Um, but I, I definitely had something going on with me that I inherited. And I really feel like I inherited it from your all y'all side of the family and potentially the Fritz side of the family, but intense, intense battles with addiction. Yeah. And I have no, I mean, I, like, I, I obviously don't know anything about your, your mom's side of the family. Um, but there's, there's plenty of, um, of uh, addictive history on, uh, on dad's side of the family. Uh, one of the things that's been really kind of salvational for, um, for me and really uh, is, is my mom's side, which there's also plenty of addiction um, and like depression. And I think I told you her, her birth mother committed suicide and um, so did her brother. Um, oh my God. And uh, her, yeah. Um, so what then her and, and um, her dad was a, a functional alcoholic, for a very long time. He finally got sober and was sober for the last several decades of his life. Um, but, uh, but the whole time that she was growing up, he was a very classic, um, you know, like working professional, you know, brown liquor, uh, alcoholic who, you know, took like loved the family, took care of them, provided for them. Also occasionally would break his hand, punching a cop. Um, so, you know, not, not um I don't, I don't think very uh like textbook alcoholic uh, alcohol abuser or al- alcoholic abusive um like it wasn't abusive to uh the kids i don't think um 
that now I'm having trouble remembering, but yeah, I mean, very like uh, textbook uh, kind of uh, archetype for that era of the, the, the alcoholic working professional man. Um, and, but the, the benefit uh, in the long run is that my mom finally was uh, harmed enough by all this stuff that she decided to uh, become, to, to get into me- mental health. Um, so that was that, at least that's, she, I don't, I don't think she's ever explicitly said this to me, but this has been my theory for a long time. That's why she decided to, um, to become a counselor, uh, cause she didn't go back to school. She started school at, you know, the, the regular age, um, but that she didn't finish school when she was in New York and then moved to Idaho. And it wasn't until her mid thirties, um, that she went back to get her bachelor's and master's degree, um, in, uh, in counseling. And it, then that was after, it was a few years after, um, her, her brother took the rainbow road. Oh man. Yeah, that's that. And how was that for you to have a mom who had so much training in counseling and emotional intelligence? I have to say, I've just been floored getting well, I told to you the know joke the about family this. and like how, how emotionally intelligent you all are. It's so rare and beautiful. Like I, t- I, I told you my, my joke about that, like about growing up with a mom who's a counselor and, uh, you know, being on the playground and having conversations where I'm like, you know, Billy, when you call me a faggot, that doesn't make me play baseball better. Um, <laughs> and he just punches you anyway. And that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that's, uh, and that I like, that was because even uh, it did a lot and it really helped. It especially helped um, me as I grew up and saw some of this dysfunction from dad and started reacting to it. Mom helped me express that better rather than developing like uh, what could have been a fairly like toxic and um, uh, antagonistic relationship with dad. Mom, mom helped us talk to each other um, and, and be better at communicating with, with each other. Um, I don't, I, I don't think my relationship with dad would be what it is if, if mom hadn't been there to help us be more competent, uh, at communicating with each other. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a huge part of it, but yeah, early on, I don't know how much it helped, uh, like with me outwardly, like with, with the rest of the, the world, just because, just having my mom like learn all that stuff didn't mean that I immediately like absorbed the, the emotional intelligence. It still took me a really long time, uh, and like concerted and deliberate work, uh, yeah. to, to develop a level of, of emotional intelligence. Good for you. That's your own empowerment. That is the thing that so many people are afraid of of Mm -hmm. facing those fears and facing those vulnerabilities and it's hard and it's crunchy and and scary but there's so much learning about ourselves that that comes from that and learning about uh our ancestors i think it's incredible work and valuable work i wish it were more valued by the collective as a whole yeah, it's just it's a pain in the ass, and there's no there's <laughs> no money in it. So fuck that, right? There's no yeah. money in it. Just 
Uh, I was, I also thought from what you were saying, um, I have studied some Buddhism and some Hinduism and, um, in Buddhism, the archetype of the hungry ghost, and I'm not sure if this is coming, if it's the same thing that the book is talking about, but this is also in my project, um, the free system project, which I'm using art to look at some of the shadow aspects of the patriarchy. And then I'm dreaming with, with other collaborators, we're dreaming new systems, um, that we deserve to have healthy, loving systems on this planet instead of these oppressive, awful systems that are dysfunctional. Um, so the imagery of the hungry ghost is they are, they have these large distended bellies and they're always breathing fire. And so no matter how much they drink water to quench the fire, they breathe more fire. So it's kind of like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know, we can look at that as like the our tendency also towards consumption and no matter what we consume and how much gas we use and how many times we fly into space and how many things we buy, it's never enough. And we're always needing more because there's some kind of hole inside of us uh, that actually, that there are needs, there are actual needs that we have inside of us that are not being met. And so we're, we're hungrily consuming these other things to try to fill those needs, but we're not actually filling the need directly that we have. Ah, I think that's what it is. Um, never, never satiated. And then that also applies to the addiction of drugs and alcohol. At least that's how it was for me. Yeah, that that's, uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain that's where Mate gets the, the phrase for the book title. Um, he talks about the Buddha a lot. I can't specifically recall if he attributes the concept of hungry ghosts to Buddhist teaching, but I think he very well might. Um, but, uh, but he talks about Buddhist teaching broadly quite a lot. Um, and, hmm. uh, and yeah, I think what you're describing is pretty much exactly what he, uh, what he's describing in, uh, in, in the use of that term. Yeah. In the, the woman that I'm working with, Erin, she and I created a couple of videos. One is called the wheel of capitalism. And that's one of our hungry ghost videos. And for that one, we're looking at our insatiable need to be productive and that, and the oppression that comes with that, that we, Obviously, we we need to work. We will always need to work. We have to grow food for ourselves, and we need energy, and we have art. We got all this stuff we need to do, but that incessant, you know, just like whoops, produce, produce. Don't sleep. Don't take care of yourself. Um, and it's a little bit. It can be insatiable for our culture, and and just being like curious as to why are we doing that and why why are we agreeing with that and what is it in and and how do we get off of that wheel that is the that's that's the bigger problem because i don't think it takes that much to get the average person to realize like hey this sucks 
right? Like, this sucks. Um, but we're all, you know, working, we're all living within the system. So, we, I mean, you can look at stuff like there's a, there's, um, uh, some fascinating uh, work that's been done on kind of trying to quantify in like a uh, like a pre-technological uh, like hunter-gatherer type of society and you can use a, you know several different uh, examples how much of what we would categorize as work whether that's hunting or farming or foraging um, or whatever or building building shelter um, whatever like how much time would a person spend working in that si- that sort of a society and it's like fucking 10 hours a week or whatever <laughs> really right yeah yeah yes um it's freaking smart but like then you just lay around us, and look at the clouds right but like none of us can get uh can can get to the point of like we can look at that and be like yeah i i would be way happier uh, I'd be way happier if I had a four day work week. Um, even if I still had to work 40 hours, if I had to work four 10 hour days and then, uh, and ha- had three days off every week, I, 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 I'd be much happier with, with that structure, but that's not an option that you can't just check that box because we have, you know, we have a society that works this, you know, this way. And so if you have a job, you have a, if you're lucky, you have a, a like a relatively regular schedule job. You have a you know mo- morning to morning to early evening, Monday through Friday job, um, and because otherwise you're like on the randomized schedule of the service industry or on the working when everybody else is uh, is off. You know, working overnight jobs or or whatever. Um, although honestly, that like a lot of those jobs sometimes come with a benefit of working of getting more you know you're getting your time off in in greater chunks but there's just not a like unless i guess if you want to like totally downsize and just choose to to live on you know minimal whatever um and and not worry about working four days or five days a week not working not not getting a full-time uh schedule then that that's maybe that's possible but the other thing again going back to fucking healthcare, like the fact that healthcare is tied to our employment is the i i hesitate to call it the biggest scam that's ever been per- perpetrated on americans because there's a lot of them but yeah. this is one where i'm like what in the fuck are you talking about I that, that i have to like i have to worry when i'm if i'm sitting here and I'm considering changing jobs in addition to not knowing whether i'm going to be happier in this position whether it's going to be better for me in the long term whether it's going to be better for you know for my home life for my work life balance um also, I have to be like, I, I have to look at their fucking benefit package and be like, okay, what is, is this going to be better health insurance? Is it going to be worse health insurance? Oh, also, I'm not going to have health insurance for three months between the time that I quit this job and, and after I start that job, because that's the way the system is, was allowed to be built. And nobody stood up and been like, what in the fuck are you talking about no you can't just make people be oh you could get cobra okay cool i can spend six hundred dollars a month 
because I don't just no. It's what sick. are you, what are you talking about? This is the mo- if you described this system, yeah. if it didn't already, if it wasn't already in operation, and you sat down and like drew out the way the American healthcare system works, somebody'd be like, "You're going to jail." Yeah, this is that, evil. Yeah, this, this is, is evil. Like yeah. you don't do this to this people. This is some fucking this is evil Lex, and wrong. Straight up Lex Luthor shit. Totally. Um. That, and what I would add to, like, you know, as we talk about these things and maybe look at potentials for how things could change, um, I see potentially, and I didn't just see this until talking with you right now, that potentially our need for product, you know, to produce, to produce, to produce, to feel like we're worthy is rooted in ancestral trauma, at least partially, maybe not fully, but maybe part of is, which, which is powerlessness. You know, that's what trauma kind of does is it, it fucks our shit up and then we're powerless and our power gets lost somewhere. And then we have to like go back into our bodies and find it. And so some of these things we've been talking about, like in the last one with mutual aid or the potential for a number of people to decide that they're going to try to work less. I think what would have to occur is that a, some largish percentage of people on the popul- in the world would have to decide to become empowered. And right now we... One thing that's easy for us is we can blame Elon Musk and we can blame the billionaires and we can blame the government. But ultimately, to come into our power, we'd have to work together to create the new thing that we wanted because they aren't going to do it for us. And that's almost like that's almost like, you know, we got to wake up to that. We have to grow up enough into that to be the next generation of leaders that are different than what we have going on now. Yeah. Um, so first of all, you just reminded me of, uh, a, another podcast that I was just, uh, episode that I was just listening to as I was on, on my way home, um, from my bike ride. So it's a new show called, and it's kind of a, um, uh, you'd almost call it like a companion show to behind the bastards. Um, which I've, I've sent you that show before. And that's been like one of my, one of my top listen podcasts for uh, a number of years. And the bent of that show is focusing on generally individuals, but sometimes it's organizations um, and, uh, you know, horrible things that they've done and uh, just kind of doing a really deep dive into Uh, into awful people and then once a year on Christmas they do an episode about a good person which is awesome Um, they so they the same um, producer who um, who makes that show uh, is now doing a new one with a woman uh, named Margaret Killjoy called cool people who did cool things Um, but the at least the first I was just skimming through it because it's a relatively new show and at least the first couple episodes are like similar subjects, similar historical events to what behind the bastards covers, but it's like the angle is slightly different in terms of like, it's about 
uh, examining and celebrating the people who did an amazing thing in this horrible situation. The one that I was listening to um, was about the um, the big uh, coal miner uprising at um, the fuck was it called? Um, I forget the name of the event. It is a it's a very famous event. It was the um, it's the like the biggest insurgency Blair Mountain. Um, so it is, um, also like sometimes referred to as the coal wars, but it was basically, uh, the early 20th century as, uh, some coal mines were starting to unionize and starting to work towards like better working conditions. And, but you know, some of the other coal mines, you still had people who are working like 18 hour days and getting paid just like poverty wages and, you know, they owing their souls to the company store and stuff. So there was this massive, uh, effort to organize and unionize, um, that eventually led to, these uh mine owners sending a shitload of of gunpower to try and uh to try and destroy these uh these labor organizers and it turned into uh a, a fucking a, a massive insurgency um so it's a, a, a it's a story that involved that that deserves um way more way more detail than that um but uh i can't remember what you said that made me think about that. Um, just people coming together to be empowered. Yes. And I think that what what's happening in the world right now with all of the finger pointing and blame and we're really getting separate in these two extreme camps, that might be a part of our evolutionary process, though. We might have one, to... One of the challenges some... to Well, hold me... on. I just want to oh, say sorry. is just... Is that we're being separated even so, I mean, we have the like extreme right left separation, but we have the fact that people who actually have a lot in common. I mean, I'm experiencing this with some of my friends. We can't even be friends because we can't talk through uncomfortable things like we can't really unite. Right. Right. Excuse me. Right now. Plus, we have all the white supremacy bullshit, uh, you know, and it's it's a problem. I think it's I think that might be our biggest problem right now is our separation and our our reliance too much on individuality as the way well you the your choice of words there was extremely important you said we're we are being separated which is absolutely the case because and this is not like a conspiracy thing because this isn't hidden this isn't a secret right. this is the way that power in the world works and that is to deliberately like it, it is every, every every fucking talking point everything that any politician ever tweets is just about calcifying their base and making sure that people stay on opposite sides of each other so that power can remain in power and that people will not realize that every single person who makes less than $100,000 a year has a million more reasons to uh, organize with each other and, uh, and, and go and do a French Revolution uh, than the, the, but, but we're all convinced like, so going back to the, the mine workers thing, one of the, one of the biggest things that they were fighting for was a five day work week, work week and eight hour work days. Right. Um, mm -hmm. One of, again, I think 
um, that quality of life would improve and studies have shown that uh, even productivity would improve uh, if we were if we went to a four day work week. Um, even less. We don't need to work this much for this, you know, for this right, system. Right. We could but, be working 20 hours and and. We have all the technology we need to help support us being able to work 20 hours a week. Oh, dude, fucking the, 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 the expropriation of labor value via technology yeah. is one of the most fucking infuriating things because like every single technology that's been invented to create like the, the labor savings from labor saving technology, that money has never in the history of technology been used to just support the lives of the people who no longer have to do that labor Every, and to all support of, our health all We're of all that unhealthy. money i mean all of that money just gets fucking funneled uphill uh oh, it is so oh, it is it is fucking infuriating <laughs> And that's why I talk about like expropriation of labor value. And, you know, we're going to continue talking about Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos just because they're easy punching bags. Um, but like, they are. dude, people are, con- people have been, have, have, have managed to be convinced that Elon Musk earned the amount of money that he has. Stocks. Eat it, How? You know. Like, yeah. How? That is a fucking insane concept <laughs> that that an individual can earn that much money through their actual effort and their labor. No, they can't. If and it is uh, to, you mentioned stocks like if we accept that the amount of value that is represented in Elon Musk's supposed wealth uh, is real, that that value was actually created, um, which it wasn't. But if we assume that it was, that value should have been distributed amongst the people who worked towards creating that value. Like Elon Musk did not do all of that work like all of his engineers, every single person who turned a wrench in one of his fucking factories. Um, yeah. Businesses shouldn't be allowed to exist without profit sharing. That's, I guess, I guess where I'm getting. Yeah. Again, this, this would be a part of one of our solutions to some of these problems is that we need limits. Yeah. You can, and you know what? Hey, I'll give it, I'll, I'll, I'll give a a, bad thing. I'll give us, I'll give us, give a concession to the capitalists. We don't have to go full socialist. The state doesn't have to, the state doesn't have to own every business. Okay. You can have private enterprise. You can have a free market. Yeah. But with caps, if you employ somebody, you have to give them the value of their labor. And healthcare is free. Because all of us deserve to be healthy as a baseline. What also do And fucking, we don't we uh, don't have to <laughs> Oh god, this makes me so like the arguments against universal healthcare are so bad. They make me so mad. <laughs> fucking, Ridiculous. Like do you know how much fucking money we waste on our terrible healthcare system? It's so fucking bad. 
I don't even. I think a lot of people outside the U. I think like the the baddest of the American health healthcare system is well known to a lot of people. But I was shocked. I um, was talking to a dude who is uh, a winemaker in Chile. Um, he's originally from the Netherlands, uh, and he's lived in Chile for a lot of years. Which obviously Chile's healthcare system is probably still recovering from fucking you know Pinochet. Pinochet. Yeah. Which that's a that that's. Um, a, a, a fantastic story in like the history of American fuckery um, in uh, in other countries. I yep. did. Um, I still want to do this other podcast about wine and history, but so far I've only come up with two stories for it. So uh, it takes a lot of research. But I one lived of the in ones Chile I, for a while. Okay, so um, how much do you know about what happened to Allende, like leading up to his death? Um, and, and like specifically like the, it, like the U S fucking around in, in Chilean elections. I have this great story, actually. My shiatsu teacher, a German woman who I knew in Bolivia had this story that she told me. She had moved to Chile just before Allende was killed. And she knew lots of people who were artists and activists at the time. And she was listening to the radio and all of a sudden, the music on the radio station changed, and it was like, burr, 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 this somos el nacionalista radio Chile. And then she started to turn the dial on the radio, and every single radio station went from you know all the different radio stations to the same exact programming until every single radio station had the exact same radio programming of the Pinochet uh, government that's like coming down the pipeline. They killed artists. They killed so many artists and they just screwed Chile's culture over. And they also uh, really did a number on the relationship to food, food structures and the indigenous way of knowing They had There was so much indigenous knowledge happening in that region as well. And they, they, that also, you know, started this whole process of privatization. But I think that the killing of the artists and the killing of the indigenous and the indigenous knowledge really messed Chile up. I mean, that happened here too. And we as white people don't, maybe don't always acknowledge like how fucked we are that, that we uh, don't treat our indigenous people with reverence and their bodies of knowledge. I feel that way, but I think it really, it messed with Chile, Chile's heart, I think, and soul. I mean, there, so prior to uh, the death of Allende. Um, and he was amazing. He was, he was he pretty was cool. He was also kind of bougie, but oh, uh, was he? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, and that's, I think. Some of the people who, because I, I met a dude in uh, Seattle who had grown up, um, grown up in Chile and lived through um, the um, the the Pinochet coup, um, and didn't actually have he I, I don't think he didn't seem to be a huge fan of Pinochet, but he also was not a fan of Allende. I see. Um, but what stood out to me when I was reading that story was first and foremost that uh, Chile had a way more um, progressive 
government, a lot of more progressive laws um, than the rest of the world at the time and more than um, certainly than the United States does currently. Um, they like nationalized their healthcare very early on. Uh, they were also one of the first, if not the first parliamentary democracy in like the modern world. Um, and, but so the U S is so fucking terrified of the concept of communism, the concept of socialism that they dumped so much fucking money into, uh, fighting anything that even smelled like, uh, communism or socialism. Um, in, especially in, uh, in South America, um, which to be fair, like Russia was very fucked up and I, I, I will give them that, uh, you know, and get, allowing situations to be created that gave Russia more allies because Russia was doing and everywhere, especially in, I feel like fucking every express, every attempt at uh, like socialism or communism that occurred in Asia or Eastern Europe was just a fucking catastrophe. Uh, whereas the one, like there were a lot of, uh, of socialist ideas that were implemented uh, in Western Europe and South America that were, South that America. were, that were doing great. Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and like, like one of the things that stands out to me is that, uh, Allende's opponent, and I forget if it was in, in 1970, he won in 1970. Um, and I forget if the, I think the opponent, yeah, the opponent, the United States backed against Allende, who Allende beat was, farther left and more socialist than like anybody who could get elected to public office in the United States in 2020 in, in 2022. Um, and like there was uh, in, in 64, cause Allende ran, I think three times um, and it's a six year presidential term uh, in 64. Uh, he basically got Ralph Nadered by um, a defrocked priest who was also like an avowed Marxist. Uh, and he like, so there was the the centrist guy, there was Allende, who was kind of center left, and then there was like this way left radical guy. Um, and Allende was trying to get like enough of the center vote and uh, enough of the radical vote uh, to to win. But this uh, defrocked priest, I forget his name, um, he managed to siphon off uh, siphon off uh, enough of the like extreme far left vote uh, that uh, that Allende lost. But dude had been in politics for in Chile for for years. He was genuinely dedicated, despite the fact that you know people like I said people criticize him for being uh, kind of a, a man of leisure, like he you know he he liked liked nice things he liked expensive wine and stuff um but he's also like fucking in his 60s so fucking let a man have a bottle of wine and a comfy sweater when he's in his 60s um but uh like one i wish i could find and an image when of you this. were reading the history of this did you also read that because i mean they killed him yeah right well he killed himself it's know. not not really there's there there are um, I mean, he killed himself because they were about to come in and kill him. Um, so there, and there are like conspiratorial, um, you know, theories and beliefs that, uh, that somebody else killed him, but the most reliable sources, um, that I've been able to find, uh, seem to agree that, yeah, he, he shot himself in the presidential palace while, uh, while Pinochet was basically marching on the, the palace to come and to come and kill him. Yeah, it's a very sad, it was a very sad time in Chile's history. And, and Chile, they have so much 
such an such amazing amazing culture all of latin america latin america i just have you been to latin america no the farthest south i've been is, i, I is worship latin america a little bit uh they have got it going on and i feel like we could really learn a lot from latin america the integration work that's already happened on spiritually and racially and socially and artistically i love that place yeah i mean there's a so much ton that. of like amazing um amazing. progressive stuff and there and i mean the other thing that drives me nuts about the uh like the history of the u.s fuckery in latin america is just that you know you know as we're born and raised in america we tend to look at south america as like this you know fucked up place with a violent history and um and poverty and blah 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 and it's like that's because the U.S. spent a shitload of time destabilizing people either to prevent socialism from taking hold or to uh, to exploit uh, natural resources yep. and to funnel shit Hardcore. up here. It's like Hardcore. it's not because there's something inherently dysfunctional about South America or something. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> it is. Um, should I sing a song? Uh, yeah, I think we're probably, yeah, let's, let's call, I don't know if we actually finished any of our subjects. <laughs> I won't find that it's out. It's always until, the next one. Yeah, I won't uh, find no, that No, we got to finish I, tattoos. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah, know. We, Do you finish a hungry ghost subject? No, ever? I mean, I think that's going to be, I feel like that's going to be an, an ongoing, ongoing uh, thing, but yeah, thing. let's. Let's wrap up this episode with a with another song. Oh, I also I decided because I was originally just planning on using you know your album songs, um, but we can totally do you know live songs anytime you want. But also when we run out of uh, songs that you want to do, uh, I'm going to start plugging in some of Dad's and Alex's songs uh, to <gasps> the end of these episodes. <coughs> do it. Okay. Well. Start start with one of them. Pick I, one. <gasps> okay. Oh, for sure. Dad's got this one that uh, I'm. He ha- I think he had it remastered because he found the original recordings. Um, it's like kind of a pseudo Weird Al type uh, song called Appliances. <laughs> Just about how he wants a bunch of gadgets around the house. <laughs> I heard a song by Divot that was so beautiful about like uh, love. Uh, which one? I don't know. Like, oh, I, I don't remember the name. You're the one of my life. I don't know. I wrote he sent it to me. I need to listen to it again. Okay. Well, it's a good one. It's a beautiful song. When I listened to it for the first time and I realized that he was my father, I cried. <laughs> we should play that one. Okay. So this song is about, well, it's pretty obvious what it's about. And you can sing along, audience, if you want to. You can snap and rock your body back and forth and relax your nervous system, stimulate the vagus nerd. Nerd. The vagus nerd. Okay. This morning, you step out of the shower. All our sweaty places, they smell like a flower. 
This morning, we stepped out of the shower, and we stepped right into our mother clucking power. This morning, we stepped out of the shower. All our sweaty places, they smell like a flower. This morning, we stepped out of the shower. And we stepped right into our mother clucking power. enough yeah it's probably pretty good thank you for listening to us talk this has been how i met my brother we hope you have a great day we hope you have a great day lots of love everybody we're gonna get through this it's gonna be fine
Thank you for joining us. We're glad you were here. If you want to support what we're doing, you can do that at patreon.com slash H-I-M-M-B or at Heidi J L L C on Venmo. Thank you. We appreciate you. Donate now.